At the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have a, a pleasure to have with me Dr. Meredith, Meredith Vanston, who is a, the Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. Thank you for being here and welcome, Meredith. Thanks, Sarah. So, Meredith, you and I have known each other for, for a while now, uh, but mostly in the environment of research. And I was wondering if we can start this conversation by you telling us about yourself without, without telling us about your research. Is that possible? <laughs> is it possible? This is, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like uh, my research is a, is a part of my identity for sure. But um, when I'm not working, um, I think that the other parts of my identity are that I'm a, I'm a mom, I have a, a small kid, and um, I don't know, I like to spend time outdoors and go hiking in the woods and play with my dog. And uh, yeah, I don't know, the, and do research. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, when I met you, I was very early on in my career and you were actually the person, I always tell this story to everyone, Meredith was the one who helped me understand the nuances of doing qualitative research. And I'm very grateful for that. And, but at the time, uh, you were not really in medical education research. You were doing you were doing some other kind of research. How did you end up getting into this community and, be, and being interested in topics about medical education research in general? Um, I think kind of by accident. I was thinking earlier today about how I ended up in research, and it was sort of a um, definitely a curiosity driven thing. But I didn't intend to set out to have a career in research. When I was growing up, I, um, I was really interested in being a lawyer. I'm a very sort of rule-oriented person. I'm really interested in what's right and what's just and, and that kind of stuff. And so when I was, a, a, you know, like a high school student or when I was picking an undergraduate program, I really was thinking about law. Um, but as I got to understand what uh, legal work is, I became really uncomfortable with the idea of precedence, the idea that we had to do what had been done before and that we would take these decisions and we would apply them to new um, cases or new circumstances that could be very different. Uh, I, I, I found myself kind of wondering about context and, and how um, justice could be served or not served by trying to follow rules that had been made before and to make people subject to the same decisions that um, had been created in, in completely different circumstances. And so I think at the time that uh, I had my first encounter with research, I was sort of, um, as you know, most 20 year olds do, kind of like thinking about what does the future look like for me? What am I interested in? What do I think my strengths are? Uh, and I had an undergraduate um, professor uh, who I was taking her class and she said, you know, Meredith, I have uh, this project that I'm doing this summer and I have a bit of money to hire a research assistant and would you like to do this? I thought, I don't know, like research, I'm not really sure. Um, all through school I had at least one job and so at that point in time I had already lined up myself a full-time job and a part-time job 
for the summer because you know you have to pay your bills and uh, the idea of taking another job I just I wasn't sure but I thought you know what I can do it and I said to her okay but you need to know that I'm working uh, from nine to five doing this and I'm working on weekends and two evenings a week doing this so I can do I can be your research assistant but it's going to have to be like kind of around the schedule and, and she was mm -hmm. wonderful and, and flexible and said okay uh, and it was really that project in that summer that got me fascinated with research and really able to see the possibilities. So the project that we were doing was about maternal request cesarean sections and the idea that um, about who, who and why uh, women would be requesting to have a C-section rather than um, having it sort of be suggested or as medically necessary by the physician. And that just got my mind turning about uh, the different ways that that knowledge could be created and the questions that could be asked and, and um, the possibilities. So I think that that's kind of what took me off of the law track and, and put me on the research track and definitely got me interested in this as a career and thinking about graduate school uh, and, uh, and moving on, moving on from there. Well, I can totally see now when, when I ask you over email, like how do you describe your research? And you told me it's about uh, patient and providers experiences of socially and ethically complex aspects of healthcare, which now totally makes sense to the story of law that I, I didn't know before. And I was wondering, besides that project, was there a memorable experience uh, that you personally had to go through that kind of click with you? to make you so interested in this idea of socially and ethically complex aspects of healthcare? Yeah, so I think that medical ethics has been an interest um, for a long, long time. So um, I can remember being in, I don't know, like grade seven or grade eight and having to pick a, a topic for a, an independent project. And um, I'm not sure how or why, but I ended up picking euthanasia. And maybe it was in the news at that time. That was probably around the time that um, the Rodriguez trial was happening in, in Canada. So this was a, a Supreme Court case about um, whether, whether somebody had the right to die. Um, and so this was sort of interesting to me at that age. And um, I remember in that project, I, I wrote an email, just like a cold email to a professor at McGill, a medical ethics professor. And she was so generous with her time and like really sent me a very detailed uh, explanation back. And, and we sort of had a little bit of a back and forth. And that was what inspired my interest in these, in these complex um, decisions in medicine that are faced by both patients, but also providers, because uh, one of the things that I think that this professor pointed out to me at that time was that uh, medical assistance in dying, which is what we call it now, but, but back then we called it euthanasia or maybe physician assisted death, um, was not just about the decision that the patient made, but also that there was implications for the healthcare providers who were who were involved in this, who had taken an oath not to do no harm and to be healing patients, and in many cases would have a very long-standing relationship with this patient. This this provider might have seen them through the course of this um, this terminal illness, and now be at be faced with this request um, at the end of of that relationship. Um, and so I think that. That has been an interest for a long, long time, and I initially conceptualized that interest as law. So, because this was a Supreme Court case, and and um, these issues were being being tried in the courts and um, subject to legislation and all that kind of stuff. But then later, I saw no. I think the thing that I'm really interested in is understanding the circumstances that people encounter when they when they meet these um, these ethically or these socially or these morally complex decisions about their healthcare. Um, or their body or their illness or, you know, any sort of aspect of this. 
and how they navigate those questions, uh, both from a provider and from, from a patient perspective, because I think it's, uh, it's different. It's different how we meet these, but really the interaction between the clinician and between the patient is so essential about um, the patient being able to find a, a resolution that's, that's satisfactory to them. And so I'm thinking back to when I was thinking about graduate school, I was thinking about, I wanna do a master's degree in medical medical ethics. And there wasn't a lot of, um, there wasn't a lot of programs at that time that offered like an explicitly medical ethics um, uh, program, but I did find uh, this professor who was an obstetrician gynecologist who had a PhD in ethics. And I spoke with him about, you know, like I have this interest in medical ethics, like this is what I wanna do. Uh, graduate work in like would you agree to work with me and um, he said oh like okay but the only graduate program that I have affiliation with right now that will take people who aren't clinicians is this um, program in in health professional education so you'll have to sign up for this program in health professional education but we will do a project about medical ethics so don't worry about it it's called something different you'll have to take a few courses about about HPE, but really we're gonna be doing this. We will construct a, a program of, of work for you that's about medical ethics. And so that's how, um, how I found myself at Western doing this project in HPE, which for the first few years, I was kind of like, I'm not interested in this. This is sort of like a, a means to an end. Um, but I became interested in it when I started working with you and with Lorelai and the folks at Siri and really started to see that there were a lot of medical education projects that um, that could be interesting to me because they really grappled with how providers encountered uh, ethical uh, dilemmas in, in their practice and how they navigated those, how they identified them, how they worked with patients to resolve those. And so that's what kind of helped me to see the bridge between medical education and, um, and the ethical work that, uh, that I was interested in. And in doing that, because you have been very successful in your career so far, um, what kinds of challenges have you faced or have you experienced that have given you important lessons to consider for your career? Uh, I think I could talk a lot about um, challenges or, or lessons, but I don't know that I have a lot of resolutions or, or answers. So I think one thing that has um, stuck with me or has been a consistent challenge since the very beginning is that I'm too, I'm interested in too many different things and I'm not very good at focusing on one area. And so I remember when I was a student thinking, oh, this is just about being new to the field and being um, novice and like not really knowing what's out there and I will find my niche. Um, in academia, we're really encouraged to develop this like deep, deep expertise in a very small, minute area to be the world expert in something like so specific that nobody else has anything to say about it. Right. Uh, and that has always been a challenge to me because the things that I'm really interested in um, are are many, but they also um, are wide topic-wise. So, so I usually explain my research program now as uh, I'm interested in, in how people experience and navigate the ethically complex aspects of healthcare, but I've explored that by looking at prenatal testing for disability, uh, medical assistance in dying, um, decision-making about surgeries and medical treatments where the evidence is really equivocal about whether or not this is going to help somebody. Um, uh, decisions about cannabis use in pregnancy and lactation for people who uh, perceive a lot of therapeutic benefit from cannabis and aren't really sure about how to how to proceed through the perinatal period. 
um, medical abortion, all kinds of all kinds of different, really different things that have the common thread of some decisional complexity, some ethical um, or moral aspect, which I understand to mean um, affect people beyond the person who's making the decision themselves. So a lot of decisions that um, pregnant people are making are going to affect um, their, their future child, their family, um, maybe everybody else who lives with the condition that they're deciding whether or not they want to terminate the pregnancy for. So there's a lot of sort of uh, ripple effects of these, of these decisions that people are making, but in the context of their own, their own personal health. Yeah, very complex and sensitive matters. And, but despite those challenges and, and complexities, could you recall one unexpected but gratifying moment that you have experienced in your career? Um, I think that the, the most gratifying moments, the things which jump to mind are almost always about the students and the trainees that I work with. So um, I really love supervising graduate students or, or undergraduate students and um, working with folks to help them do the research that captivates them and that they see as important. So this is something else which is not helping me narrow my own, <laughs> my own scope, <laughs> is that I like to work with folks who come with a passion and a vision and like, this is what I want to do. And this is the, the thing that lights my fire that drives me, me forward. And the way that I usually frame it to them is that it needs to be close enough to something that I know about so that I can give you some guidance so that I have expertise, something like something to offer you, you know, I, I can't help you do a project about cell biology, but um, within the realm of, of things that people bring to me about ethical and social complexity in healthcare, like there's so many different, different topics. So some of my students are working on projects about um, for instance, Black women's experiences of cervical cancer screening, um, the advice that Indigenous grandmothers have for healthy pregnancies to, um, um, to their, their daughters and granddaughters, um, uh, family violence and, and how we, um, what we can learn from survivors of sexual violence about how to train healthcare providers to recognize and to respond to people who've, who've experienced sexual violence. So these like really diverse topics, but are the things that inspire my, my students. And so um, those are always the most, the most gratifying is to work with someone and to help them um, find their way in research. And every time they get a scholarship or an acceptance to a program that they want to work in or their first published paper, like these, these milestones for them are, uh, I think, the best, the best moments for me. That's great. And I imagine within all that diversity of topics and people you work with, you have to make many decisions. And I was wondering if you can share with our listeners, what is one decision that you made that didn't turn out the way you planned, but in hindsight, it was a good decision? Um, enrolling in a PhD program that was <laughs> not what I wanted to do because it let me work with people that I want to that I wanted to work with. Um, so I think that coming to Western and working with Jeff Nisker and Anne Kinsella and Lorelei Lingard, like these are people who have really been foundational in, in my career and in helping me get a foothold in this, in this industry. And if I had gone looking for a program which was exactly what I wanted to do, then I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to meet and to work with them. So I've sort of taken that, um, 
positive um, experience as a bit of a, a marker for the rest of my collaborations and the rest of the ways that I make decisions professionally about what I want to do and what I want to get involved with is that I want to work with people who um, who are inspiring and dedicated and enthusiastic and and just also kind and nice and and fun uh, and that to me the project is less important as the team and and I'm willing to get in all involved in all kinds of projects that people are really fired up about if they're people I want to work with um, and this is also maybe a reason that I haven't found my niches that I keep keep saying yes to projects that are like outside of things that I already know about because I think it sounds like a, a fun thing to do and, and good people to get involved with. Um, so what's the story behind that not wanting to do that the PhD that you wanted? Is it well, tied to your master's or is it a different story? Oh, sorry. It's the same. It's the same story. I um, I entered as a master's student and then I didn't complete my master's. I just stepped up to uh, to the PhD. So it was yeah one one decision to enter a health professional education program without really knowing what that was or um, wanting to do to do that type of work. Okay. So if you were to reflect back on your career, what will be the turning point besides the decision to do a PhD? Did you have another? turning point in, that you have experienced that has given you the most memorable ex lessons for you? Um, I think lots. And they're often, they're often people. They're often people that I worked with that I've learned something important from um, that I've sort of taken, taken forward with me. So one of the more recent turning points has been work that um, I've done with, uh, with Dr. Deborah Cook, who's um, an intensivist and um, really a, a wonderful mentor um, and a, a world-renowned researcher who is wildly prolific and successful. But the work that I've done with her is about compassion um, at the end of life and the way that healthcare providers can, um, can demonstrate Uh, tangibly demonstrate compassion to their patients, which we found um, helps both the grief of the family members after they lose their loved ones, but also really helps the healthcare providers themselves, reconnects them with the meaning in their work and the joy that can be found in the human connection and helps um, obviate some of the pain and the trauma and the stress and the exhaustion that comes with doing this really difficult um, work caring for people who are dying. Yeah, and all those topics strike to me that they're very deep. It touches people at a personal, very deep personal level. I imagine it will touch you as well as a person. And I was wondering, uh, what have you learned about, about yourself as a person in doing this kind of work? Oh gosh, that's a hard, <laughs> that's a hard one. Um, what have I learned about myself as a person? I guess just the um, that the value of uh, relationships is something that's um, come out as important in a whole bunch of different projects, um, particularly the end of life stuff, particularly the difficult decisions that folks are making in pregnancy is that um, putting an emphasis on the relationships that you want to have in your life and, and shaping them in a way that's gratifying and generative to everybody involved Uh, is a is a good way to make any kind of, of tough decision. And so I think that I've tried to adopt that both in, in my personal life, but also in my research life, like the, the bit that I described about choosing project based on people that I want to work with has, has come from that. Um, and investing, investing in the, in the relationship and knowing that the, um, 
that the work will come and the productivity will come and there's room for everybody and there's usually a way for everybody to get what they need from uh, from whatever that work is. Yeah, very, very important. One thing that have, uh, I'm always, I have always admired about you that is my impression about you. You're a person who is not afraid of taking challenges and you can pivot very quickly. That's, that's my own experience. And I was wondering, where does it come from? Your parents, your siblings, like what makes you so driven to, there is a challenge, oh, instead of walking away, I'm going straight into eating. And these type of um, topics that you explore sound to me like appeal to you that way. Where, does, where do they come from? I missed the second bit that you, so you said a, a person who takes challenges head on. And then what was the, what was the second part of that? I just want to know uh, where does it come from uh, oh. in your personal life? You see the way you were raised and people you met, but it just strikes me that you are uh, fearless. And I really oh, admire that in you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I don't know. You know, I think that we often wonder about where personality traits come from, the, the whole nature nurture debate. And certainly as a as a parent, it's been fascinating to watch. So my son is almost six and it's been really interesting to watch his personality develop and the things that were sort of present like from day one that's that persist as as he gets older. Um, really do like it has convinced me that there is like a, a strong nature element in our in our personalities and that maybe our parents or the environment that we grow up in fosters or encourages some aspects of those or lets some of them flourish or maybe discourages other things that that might be there naturally and so I think that uh, my parents have always encouraged me to um, to do hard things and to they've always given me the confidence that I can excel that I can I can do what I what I set my mind to um, and so I guess that's something that uh, has I have integrated into my into my personality. <laughs> and is this something that you transmit to your son too? Oh gosh, I try. It's like, uh, <laughs> but it's hard. Like he's he's at a point now where he's tentative about trying things that he knows that he's gonna struggle with. Uh, and so he's, uh, I'm thinking about, I, he got a new bike for Christmas. So it's quite a bit bigger than his old bike. And he's like very nervous about riding this new bike because now he can't have his feet flat on the ground. He's got to kind of be on tippy toes and he's like very hesitant. So I really try to give him like, you can do hard things. Like you, you know, it's okay <laughs> if you can't do it at first, just try. Yeah. Uh, but he's like, not really that. <laughs> well, it's work it, in so. progress. Get there for sure. He got a good example. So that's good. <laughs> So we're almost at the end of our uh, conversation and two things that I want to cover. One is, what's your next curiosity? Did you have something coming up in your play? So I have a few things that I'm thinking about. I kind of keep like a, a list of um, questions or, or ideas. Um, well, let me, let me think about one that I want to share publicly. <laughs> um, Maybe I'll explain to you a couple and then you can pick which one that you want to keep. Um, so one of the things I've been thinking about for a long time and I think is relevant to the field of medical education in particular, but not just medical education, is what it's like to do research about your own institution. So as medical education researchers, we are embedded within the context that we're researching and we often 
know the people or the things that they're talking about or the contexts that uh, come up in our in our research through other ways. And so for me, because a lot of my education research is about um, dark subjects, so I research mistreatment and abuse and um, unprofessional behaviors and failure and remediation and uh, like, like really kind of difficult subjects, uh, I found myself time and time again sitting in an interview or reading data and thinking, I know who this person is talking about, or I know the department that they're making reference to. And sometimes it's, it's different from my experience as a, uh, as a professional in that circumstances. And, and then I'm sort of left to grapple with what do I think, um, you know, fundamental questions about truth. Like when somebody tells me something in a research interview as truth, and I know from other circumstances that that's not the way that everybody would understand that that experience or, or see that thing that I, I'm left with a lot of questions about what do we assume about the nature of what of the data that we gather through qualitative interviews and is there um, is it is it a problem if somebody is telling a story that they did not personally experience or is or somebody is representing something that they want to kind of get on the record in the in the project but um, isn't isn't their own personal experience, um, and also what happens when we accidentally stumble upon in the course of our our research information that makes us think differently about colleagues or about people who we encounter in professional settings. Um, so certainly in my research about mistreatment and abuse or research, um, I had a, a research project where um, I read. Uh, a lot of um, disciplinary files uh, from our, our medical trainees. And I hear about people that I meet in other circumstances or I read about people that I meet in, in other professional circumstances. And that is um, a challenging aspect as a researcher and something that I would like to explore um, methodologically and for the methodological implications and also explore for the ethical implications um, because I think that probably ethnographers have a lot to, to teach us here about sort of the insider the insider outsider status and and how we kind of make sense of different and conflicting or competing um, versions of of the truth or or, or of a story um, in our in our research lives well cool. what's the other can we What's, what's another one? Um, the, um, I, I run, um, I call it a lab meeting, which is kind of tongue in cheek because of course we don't work in a lab, we're all qualitative researchers, but um, um, a monthly kind of get together with um, my, my graduate students, like all my trainees, whoever's working as a research assistant in my group at that time. But then we have lots of other people who kind of join because they're um, they're interested in talking about qualitative research or they're interested in, in the work that we're doing or they used to be one of my trainees, but now they're at a different university or whatever. So we kind of have this group um, that meets regularly and we talk about our work. And one of the things that we've been talking about over the course of the pandemic are some of the challenges um, doing online research with vulnerable groups or uh, recruiting people who are um, for whatever parts of their identity feeling marginalized um, and and the the difference in the sort of online COVID pandemic uh, type research where it's harder to make relationships, it's harder to sort of reach out to people because um, a lot of my uh, a lot of my trainees are are working with um, different groups who have marginalized identities because they themselves are part of that community or have connections to the community, and so they really 
build on those partnerships or those connections that they already have to encourage people to participate, to feel safe to participate in their research, basically. And COVID has really abbreviated a lot of um, those opportunities or the opportunities to reach out, to identify people, to make relationships, to talk about the research in, in informal ways, to get input. Um, and, and that's been a struggle for, um, for lots of folks. And it's a uh, it's a struggle for us in in the cannabis and pregnancy project right now. Um, the opportunities to uh, to reach different groups of people to to talk about the research and to hopefully um, build some trust and and um, some feelings of safety for for participating. Right, fantastic. Looking forward to hear more about those, and I would like to keep the two of them if you don't mind. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So just, just to end, uh, we usually end with this question that is not related to, to research. Well, in a way, what will be one thing that most people don't know about you as a person that makes the researcher that you are now? That makes the things that people don't know about me as a person that influences my research. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that I want to share. <laughs> entire world this is like this is it's a hard it's a hard question um I don't I don't know (laughs) people have shared with us uh things that they like to do for fun that gives them something to get inspired to do research some people have yeah it's mostly around their hobbies or things that they do for fun that allows them to focus more that's one option yeah um I don't know. I think that a lot of my research projects have been inspired by personal experiences or experiences of family members or, or friends. So certainly um, both, both the projects that I choose to do, so projects about prenatal testing, projects about uh, medical assistance in dying or compassion at the time of death have been inspired by, um, by personal experiences. But also I'm inspired not to do particular types of, of research by, um, by personal experiences. So there's stuff um, that I've experienced or that family or, or friends have experienced that make me think like, I just don't want to wade into that particular ethical mess. Um, this is something that I don't feel prepared to look at with some form of objectivity or where I think that my personal stance um, is too narrower or to um, focus to really see the the array of perspectives on this issue that are out there. And um, I think that that's, it's not something that I talk about often, but I think a lot of us are inspired by personal experience. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about how other researchers make decisions about the work that they're not going to do, because you sometimes get a sense of this with your colleagues. Like I, I'm not going to give any examples because it feels like sort of calling people out, but um, definitely I've, I've worked closely with people and I've sort of noticed like this person really does not approach that or they are resistant to this whole um, like, you know, theoretical perspective. So I, I, for instance, I know one um, researcher who really does not want to work with um, feminist or, or intersectional theoretical perspectives. And I've always kind of wondered why she's shied away from that. Um, but this is, uh, I think, you know, talking about the value of reflexivity, especially as qualitative researchers, but I think for, for everybody, no matter if you're working in a lab or you're running psychological experiments or whatever type of, of work you're doing, I think it's important to ask yourself about the things that you don't feel prepared to, uh, to take on or that you think you couldn't, um, you couldn't do justice to or, or that would impact you too much personally to, 
to let you have that bit of separation with your um, yeah. with your your work and your personal life. Yeah, fascinating. Certainly something to consider. Well, Mary, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate the time that you spent with us and our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you, everyone. And until the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.